Hello, and welcome to Meandering with Myrn, a potpourri of podcast by me, veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. Join me as I ponder any and all things animal and human, what we know and what we don't, where we've been, where we are, and where we're headed. For many people seeking a more natural, ethology-based approach to their animals' problem behaviors, making the training ethology mental transition is the most challenging part. And the more training experience we have, the more difficult this may be. Both orientations recognize certain canine or feline displays as problematic under certain circumstances. However, they take different approaches to it based on their point of view. The training view is human-centered or anthropocentric. How does this animal's behavior personally affect me? Does it make me experience positive or neutral emotions? Does it upset, frighten, embarrass, or otherwise negatively affect me? Those who ascribed this orientation are more likely to perceive the behavior itself as the problem. Eliminate the behavior and we eliminate the problem. On the other hand, the ethology view of problem behavior is an animal-centered one, a result of other factors. These factors may be environmental, medical, or in the case of companion animals, as a result of the physiological, behavioral, and emotional bonds we form with our animals. Instead of asking, what is the easiest and fastest way to stop this behavior, the ethologist asks, what exactly is this animal doing And what are the effects of the behavior on those animals, their people and others around them, and their physical, mental, and emotional environments? This information then is used to determine the cause or causes of the behavior. Is it strictly an animal medical problem? Or are there physical, health, bond, environmental, or other factors also underlying it? In such a way, ethology attempts to understand the problem behavior from the animal's perspective based on what's currently known. Of the two, you don't need a degree in rocket science to realize that the training approach, superficially at least, appears less complicated than the ethology one. However, that's not necessarily the case. Both orientations have their advantages and disadvantages. Further complicating matters for those who take either approach is the lack of uniform terminology. Though trainers and ethologists may apply labels to certain animal displays perceived as problematic by some, other trainers or ethologists may prefer different labels. Even if they do agree on the terminology in and of itself, they may disagree about when and how to apply it. 
A good example of this are the many words associated with aggression. Some of these, like fear-based, predatory, rank-related, or play aggression, describe the motivation underlying the behavior. Others, like parent-offspring aggression, may describe the relationship of those involved in the display. But alas, putting a label on some behavior doesn't necessarily make it so. It strictly depends on the context in which these labels are used. If we have that, then more often than not, we can figure out how the person using the labels is defining them. As far as what this tells us in terms of a specific animal's behavior, that's all that really matters. However, these interdisciplinary and individual terminology quirks may make passing a terminology test created by a specific trainer or ethology somewhat iffy. Still, in its purest form, ethology perceives all animal behaviors as normal rather than assigning them problem labels. If you study a large group of free-roaming wilder domestic animals over a long time, you discover that behaviors are dynamic. If you read about a large group of free-roaming wild or domestic animals over a long period of time, you discover that behaviors are dynamic. What makes a behavior problematic or maladaptive in one physical, mental, and emotional environment may confer benefits in another. In this era of accelerated climate change and habitat destruction, where a hopped-up version of Darwin's adapt-or-die credo increasingly becomes the norm, we animal watchers have the dubious honor of seeing behavioral changes in wild animals occurring in our lifetimes that previously took centuries to occur. Nature's rapid reclamation of the nuclear meltdown-ravaged Chernobyl area provides enough evidence to satisfy even the most skeptical. Closer to home, we increasingly see glimpses of urban wildlife in our parks, golf courses, or other expanses of human-created landscaping. Behaviors that we used to admire in wild animals when we saw these in nature films or at zoos trouble us when we see them displayed by wild animals in our backyards or on our kids' playgrounds. Even closer to home, similar changes may affect the behaviors of our cats and dogs, too. When I first started practicing veterinary medicine, non-local animals were few. Some belonged to people who moved into the area to attend school or work at one of the local businesses. Others were young animals purchased from purebred dog or cat breeders outside the area. A few others came with summer people, winter sports enthusiasts, or tourists just passing through. But for the most part, these were the exception rather than the rule. Today, sometimes it seems like the opposite is true. Pet dogs and even some cats 
may be more likely to be transports from other parts of the country or even the world. Unlike the locally bred mixed or purebred populations whose backstory usually was readily accessible from the owners, neighbors, or animal control officers, this new population often comes with little reliable information. For trainers, this may mean that training methods developed in laboratories using controlled animal populations may work better sometimes than others. Cats or dogs from strong companion animal roots who were dumped or abandoned may respond better to training than those from long-established free-roaming solitary or semi-solitary roots. Animals who survive by scavenging or hunting may perceive training treats differently compared to those used to regular meals in secure settings. In these situations, a more comprehensive ethology approach that considers conceivable causes of the problem behavior may yield better results compared to those using methods developed to teach animals from more predictable human environments. Ultimately, though, which approach succeeds when we seek to change canine and feline behavior in our pets and our shared environments depends on the answer to the question. With whom does the primary obligation to change first lie? The animal or the person? We and our animals want the same thing we've always wanted, to get the most of what we want using the least amount of energy. This is hardwired into both of us. But if one of us must change first to help the other, who will it be? That depends on how we perceive ourselves relative to our dogs and cats. If we perceive ourselves as guardians responsible for their physical and mental well-being, then first changing any behaviors in ourselves that may contribute to their problem behaviors should head our list. That and the fact that we know ourselves better than we know our animals, no matter how enthusiastically we may claim otherwise. But if we see our animals as lesser instead of different beings, whose job it is to change their behavior to please us, then we'll want them to assume the burden of change instead. You've been listening to a podcast by veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. For more podcasts, commentaries and books about animal behavior and the human-animal bond, and links to behavior and bond sites, check out my website at www.mmilani.com. For more specific information, feel free to email me at mm.mmilani.com. All rights related to the content of this podcast are retained by Myrna Milani. The background music, Molly on the Shore by Percy Granger, is used with permission from Katova Arts, www.katova.com.